I'm James Lawrenson, the Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Last month, the Australian Human Rights Commission, in collaboration with the University of Sydney Business School, the Committee for Sydney and the Asia Society Australia, released a report, Leading for Change, a Blueprint for Cultural Diversity and Inclusive Leadership Revisited, which was an update of a 2016 publication, Leading for Change. We like to think of Australia as a multicultural and inclusive nation. But the report reveals that despite the enormous cultural diversity of Australia's population, the majority of leadership in business, politics, government and higher education remains overwhelmingly Anglo-Celtic or European. Why? How does this impact Australia's future? How might it specifically affect the Australia-China relationship? And what can be done about it? With me to discuss these issues is Philip Ivanov, CEO of the Asia Society Australia. Previously, Philip was a policy officer and manager of the Australia-China Council at the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and was a principal author of the Australia in the Asian Century white paper, China Country Strategy. Philip's got particular experience with China, having spent six years there working in education and development. Welcome to the program, Philip. Thank you, James. Philip, can we start off um, with a quick run-through of the standout findings of this report. Um, this is a report that got a lot of publicity for good reason. So can you take us, our listeners through through the key findings and also um, highlight for us, were there any key differences or changes that showed up in the 2018 report um, compared with the one that was done two years ago? Uh, thanks, James. So Leading for Change report uh, revisited uh, builds on our previous study uh, or the previous study by the Human Rights Commission rather in 2016, which provided this snapshot of cultural diversity within the leadership of our business, political, uh, as well as education institutions. What we've done is examine the cultural backgrounds of chief executives of ASX 200 companies, federal ministers, heads of federal and state government departments, and vice chancellors of universities. So that was the the, the framework of the first report, and we continue in it in 2018. What we've done in 2018 is we added another layer of management directly beyond or directly below the chief executive. So we looked at group managing directors, deputy vice chancellors, deputy secretaries of federal and state government departments to see whether there is indeed a pipeline of culturally mm. diverse leaders. Gee, that's a big data set you've got. Now. And it is, it is quite interesting mm. to, to look at both reports uh, and uh, interesting and a little bit depressing in a sense because we don't see a pipeline of leaders in the deputy, at the deputy mm. level. Um, just quickly, we looked, we adopt the classification that includes four wide groups of cultural backgrounds, indigenous, Anglo-Celtic, European, and non-European, which includes Asian, Middle Eastern, uh, and North African. And what we find that um, 95% of senior leaders in Australia have an Anglo-Celtic or European background. Gee, 95%. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Despite the fact that uh, our population uh, is is very different from that picture. Mm, And mm. over 21% of our population is of non-European background. So we find that uh, a a very 
disappointing in a sense, but but we also feel that this is a, a good time to start this conversation and that Australia is mature enough uh, to go through this national debate and mm. come out a better country sure. on the other end. Mm, okay. So, Phil, clearly in, in terms of the, the objective data on diversity, we're not doing too well. Um, can you take us through some of the evidence on what the implications of that are? Um, you know, what, what specifically are the costs that we're incurring right now um, and the costs that we might incur into the future? You know, I, I might think of someone who comes along and says, yes, but Philip, last year um, we exported more to Asia than we ever have before. We export double to Asia what we export to the OECD. Um, we're doing just fine. So what's your, what would be your response to that? What, what is the evidence on, on the implications of that lack of diversity? I think it's a very good question, and uh, and we certainly need um, a lot uh, more work to do uh, to answer that question. The correlation between the cultural diversity of our business and trade and investment flows is is an interesting one, mm. and all we see is uh, is is essentially anecdotal evidence. Um, it, it, it's critical for us to start thinking about these issues and start collecting data so so we can answer that question mm. in, a, in a consistent and fact-based mm. manner. But Australia prosperity essentially relies upon international trade, you know, capital inflows and mobility of people. And six of Australia's top ten two-way trading partners are in Asia. And senior leaders of our government institutions, of our businesses, of our departments as well as our universities are at the forefront of that engagement. Mm. And it, it is critical for us to project an image of multicultural society, and not just within our borders and talked about multiculturalism as a social cohesion project within Australia, but also as a national uh, prosperity and national security asset mm. and that's I think why it's 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 really important uh, particularly now when the the nature of our trade with the region and the world is changing and and the commodities trade is is uh, gives way to a more people focused more service oriented right. industries and I, I'll give you a, a, a quick example where I think um, it will manifest itself. Um, a few years ago, one of uh, our diplomats told me an interesting story that because of the nature of our trade with, with Asia, and he was using Japan as an example, uh, which was heavily based on commodities and resources, it, it's actually not a very people-intensive industry. Yes. Once the iron, iron ore prices or coal prices are negotiated and the logistical arrangements are, are put in place, it doesn't require a huge yeah. volume of people-to-people -people contact between the parties in this transaction. It is completely different when we're talking about legal services, university uh, mobility programs, uh, professional services, healthcare, where the intensity of that people-to-people -people contact is, is, is much higher than resources trade. Yeah, I think you've nailed it there. So yeah. as, as our engagement with the world and trade and investment is changing from our established agricultural and resource-based sectors to a service economy or digital economy for that matter, I think we will, we will need a, a slightly 
different set of leaders, mm. both in business but yep. also in the political as well as the public service mm. infrastructure. The second point I, I, I would like to make is we are entering uh, in geopolitical and geoeconomic terms into a, a much more strategically contested and, and economically competitive environment mm. than we've been used to. A bit uh, of an understatement, I'd say, <laughs> Philip. <laughs> yeah. and, and so to deal with this sort of new world uh, of increased competition, of hedging and engaging, the most critical thing for us as a country is to have a diversity of ideas and thoughts, mm. uh, starting from think tanks to our foreign policy community, to our ministers, to our opposition, mm. universities. And I think the cultural diversity of our leadership is an important factor for that diversity of thought. We want to have the best talents, the best skills at the table as we negotiate the future and much less predictable Asia mm. and the world and we have this incredible talent within our borders yep. uh, uh, within our community that I strongly believe can help us do it better than, than we're doing it now. Mm, okay. Philip, you mentioned your report um, con- collected a, a massive amount of data cutting across um, political the political scene, um, the corporate sector, universities. Um, did you find that any one of these sectors was doing better than another, or was it uniformly bad? Um, and if one was doing better than another, w- w- were there any reasons for that that stood out to you in the report? Um, the, I believe that, uh, and the report shows, uh, that none of the sectors that we have covered, and obviously we haven't covered, uh, let's say, non-profit sector, and we didn't look at the state parliaments, mm. Uh, but in ASX 200, uh, federal ministry, uh, public service, and university, uh, no one is doing exceptionally well. Okay, well, <laughs> but, there's the answer to but, that question. Uh, the yeah. business is doing marginally better okay. than universities and, uh, and public service. And is that just because they see it's good for their bottom line with that diversity and that message hasn't sunk in or doesn't need to be heated as much in those other sectors? I believe it's, it, that's probably part of the, part of the um, uh, answer. But also, I think... Uh, the deep globalization that is affecting this country yep. as well uh, okay. is, is an answer to that as well. That some of the, the companies within ASX 200 are, are essentially international companies yep. and, uh, and they, um, they need to have uh, at the top of their leadership people that represents their business interests mm. uh, across, mm. across the world, including in Asia. Uh, having said that, um, the, the picture is a little bit different if you just isolate big Australian business within this ASX 200 cohort, and it's, it's clear that their diversity drops. So uh, nobody is doing very well. Just to give you a, a kind of a practical example, in 2016 report, uh, there were no university vice chancellors of um, non-European background, and we, it 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 increased by you know all of two point six 
percent or so in mm. in 2018 because we have one yeah. vice chancellor <laughs> at the University of Canberra <laughs> okay. that was appointed in the last two years of non-European background. Right. So this is just the real numbers that we're talking about. And the main author of the report, Tim Sudpamasan, uh, often uses an example of a of a cricket team. Essentially, at the top we have about eleven CEOs mm. that are of non-European background. Essentially, the, we're talking about talking about very small numbers mm-hmm. uh, uh, for a country that is incredibly diverse, mm-hmm. and so it's a it's a it, I think it's a it's a big issue. Mm. Okay, Philip, we're the Australia-China Relations Institute, so we've got a specific interest um, in this this bilateral relationship. Now, I realise the report wasn't about China specifically. Um, that said, China's part of it, and certainly your expertise also reflects a, a lot of um, China experience. So I was wondering if you could talk about or give any examples of how, a, 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 how diversity or lack thereof um, of Australian institutions um, impact on our engagement specifically with China. I mean, maybe we could start in the economic realm. Um, do, do any examples come to mind of where I, some diversity helped or, or, or a lack of diversity hindered in our engagement specifically with China? Um, again, it's a, it's a great question and I, and I wish I could, I could answer that. Uh, there needs to be a lot more evidence, uh, a lot more digging deeper to understand this correlation between uh, our business or political uh, engagement with with China or the rest of Asia, and and, uh, and the lack of cultural diversity of our institutions, but um, I'll start with with um, with this. So I'll try to answer in a slightly different way. So the frontline kind of engagement and middle management of our people-focused and world-facing industries is very diverse. Um, you look at university international offices, you look at the bank branches in, in the areas with the large concentration of people from non-European backgrounds, you look at generally service industries. Uh, so that client-facing, uh, a, a, a client-facing community is very diverse, but you don't see it in uh, in the senior leadership mm. of our institutions, and if you if you talk about China, you know the the middle management of people that recruit Chinese students, for example, for Australian universities, so third fourth largest uh, industry, would be predominantly or largely coming from the Australian Chinese backgrounds. So the without these people and these skills and expertise, I don't think that we would have done as well in our trading relationship with China. Right. The same the same is true for the large multinationals mm. and their offices in China would have a very strong Chinese Australian or just mm. local Chinese teams. Uh, that is not often reflected in the, in the top leadership of the companies or universities mm. uh, or other institutions. And I think that it, it, it is a little bit of a problem. And I think that we'll probably have, as we get into that more competitive environment, uh, we will not be able to get away with sort of appointing people of Chinese background to only client-facing roles mm. uh, while not encouraging them or, or creating some artificial barriers 
for them to be at mm. the top mm. of the of the companies or institutions that they represent. Uh, because as I said, the, the diversity of approaches in how we deal with such a complex country and market like China would increasingly put pressure on our, on our I guess, imagination and creativity, uh, whether it's in, in politics, whether it's in mm. business. Sure. So, Phil, um, just as we start to wrap this up, can I ask you a question based on your report, but it's beyond the report. So you and I both know that the Australia-China relationship is not travelling particularly well at the moment. Are you comfortable talking about um, what you consider to be the, you know, wh- why why is that the case? And particularly, drawing on your report, actually, is, is a lack of cultural diversity in Australia. Could that be contributing? Could that be one of the problems that we've, that the bilateral relationship currently has? Uh, again, that's a, a, a trillion dollar question. Um, just to give you some background of why Asia Society, a, a global non-profit, which has its roots in the United States and promote sort of deeper understanding of Asia. Why uh, did we get involved in this report and this body of work in the first place? Last year, we started a project called Disruptive Asia, which is essentially a, a, a series of articles and perspectives from uh, both established and emerging thinkers on how Asia's rise is essentially disrupting Australia. What is the impact of Asia's economic and strategic ascendancy on Australian life, Mm. on our society, economy, uh, politics? And we uh, concluded after the first iteration of that project that we see these sort of three trends and three counter trends. So the the trends is Asia's economic ascendancy. It's the rise and rise of, of, of China at the heart of it, but also India and other uh, other nations. It's a change in Australian society. Uh, you know, we, we, we see these demographic demographic changes. For example, the high, highest number of foreign-born residents in Sydney are now originally from China. Mm. Um, and of course, the Asia's geopolitical rebalance and convergence and divergence and hedging and engaging. So these are the three trends. And in, in, in Australia, we see sort of three non-trends or counter-trends, which is shrinking or stagnant Australian business presence and investment in Asia. And we all saw the PwC report passing us by in 2014. Mm. We have uh, chronic underrepresentation of Asian Australians and in the leadership of our institutions, which we think is an important factor. Mm. And this is what this report is covering. And we also see a decline in our Asia competencies, Mm. languages in schools and generally Asian studies in universities and elsewhere. So I think this this is sort of the background of why we we got involved. And uh, uh, focusing on China and to answer your question, I think all these three three trends and three counter-trends play uh, and 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 create what is now a very difficult uh, choices and challenges for Australia's foreign and economic policy when it comes to China. Mm. We believe that the lack of uh, cultural diversity is is a contributing factor to perhaps lack of ideas uh, at the top as well as uh, in within agencies and institutions that are involved in our engagement with China. And let's face it, all of them are 
somehow dealing with China, mm. with universities or public service agencies. I think we, 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 need, uh, we need to imagine our relationship with China beyond the current problems. I think we need to, to put a lot of thought in how we deal with some of the challenges that have been, uh, been identified through media uh, on uh, foreign interference, on our uh, political as well as, uh, as well as economic relationship. Um, and I think the cultural diversity is, is, is going to play a big part in it. On a practical level, what, what does it mean? I think we have to have that conversation on China's influence within Australia, and I think it's a healthy thing to do. And hopefully, after uh, we go through the uh, through this national debate, our relationship with China will be much more resilient mm. and much more honest uh, and, and direct. But in the meantime, we need to do everything. All our institutions uh, need to do everything to ensure that our Chinese community is not targeted or isolated as a, as a source of that negative mm. political interference or influence within this country. Because our community is very diverse. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there is a diversity of thought. There is a diversity of approaches and historical and ethnic backgrounds. We have Malaysian Chinese right. and yeah. Chinese from Hong Kong, yeah. from Taiwan. So it's very important not to let this debate affect them in a negative way. And it's very important to keep an eye on, on any manifestations of racism that mm. this debate has unfortunately produced. Mm. Uh, our community is a part of our vision for the relationship with China. Second thing, uh, it, it will be very unfortunate that if because of this debate, our major political parties decide to somehow limit or build artificial barriers to the, the pre-selection of Australian Chinese candidates into mm. uh, you know, the, the seats or the, the, the Australian parliament because of the fears of being accused to be too close to China. Yeah, right. uh, we need people from diverse backgrounds in our parliament uh, because this is what our country is. We are, we are diverse and probably, arguably, one of the most multicultural nations in the world. And our parliament, as our report shows, it, it is not reflective of that. Mm, mm. So we really hope um, that, uh, that the current debate about China's influence and allegiances of our community or parts of it to, 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 to Chinese Communist Party or Chinese government is not going to uh, impact the, the promotion of, of capable Australian Chinese political leaders yeah. or, and of course business leaders and university leaders into the position of power mm. because of that perceived, uh, perceived notion that they might be agents of influence or the fifth column. Yeah, that is yeah. for me is, is a very important point. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes we talk about this Chinese Communist Party interference in Australia and the threat to freedom of expression that mm. poses in Australia and to the extent that that's true. We obviously need to be worried about that, but we equally need to be worried about freedom of expression for Chinese Australians being shut down, closed down, uh, because as you said, they're labelled unfairly as some sort of fifth column in this country. So 
they're the two key issues. Mm. They're the two sides of freedom ex- of expression that we desperately need to protect Absolutely. in this debate. Yeah. I think there are, there are forces both within Australia and outside Australia that will seek to divide us, including across racial mm. cultural mm. lines. And some may do it from the position of nationalism and populism mm. or anti-immigration and a resistance to change and disruption as mm. the world becoming more and more global and interconnected. But some will do it for strategic and foreign policy reasons. Mm. Uh, there, I have no doubt about that. And we think that having a culturally diverse leadership, as well as a diversity of ideas that come with it, at the top of our national leadership, is one of the many ways that Australia will resist these forces and, and, and navigate a much more competitive and contested world. Philip Ivanov, congratulations on the report. I think we might leave it there. I think it's a perfect place to finish up on. Thanks very much for joining us in the Acri podcast. Thanks, James. Our next episode will feature Jason Young, the Acting Director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre at the Victoria University of Wellington. We'll be discussing recent developments in New Zealand-China relations and the implications for Australia. How does New Zealand run their China policy? What might Australia learn from the New Zealand experience? If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the Acri podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all of our episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There, you'll also find out more about Acri's research and events. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Acri underscore UTS and, of course, on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.